Good evening to you. Um, who's done their homework? Put your hand up if you did your homework. One, one and a half, two, three, four, five. I didn't, I forgot. Um, I've been reading Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and I forgot to read Matthew 5 to 7. So I'm going to be gracious. If you haven't done your homework this week, make sure it's done for next. And if I haven't done it for next week, tell me off. Because we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 through to chapter 7. If you were here last week, we introduced this new sermon series for Sunday evenings. And we're going to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Is this feeding back or is it okay? Can we just lower it a tiny, a tiny bit, please? Thank you. So this is the, the, the famous sermon that Jesus preached at the beginning of his three-year ministry. Uh, before Jesus started his preaching ministry, John the Baptist were going around telling people, repent because the kingdom of God's at hand or the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And what, what John meant by that was that God's king has arrived, King Jesus. This Messiah that's been promised from Genesis 3 and he's been waited for and predicted and, and hoped for and promised all the way through the Old Testament, well, he's finally here. And John says, now he's here. You need to get right. You need to turn from your sin, repent, and believe the good news about him. And with the arrival of God's king, it makes sense that it's also the arrival of God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you remember last week, what we said was that Jesus reigns over all things. So that means Jesus has sovereign authority over every aspect of life on earth. He's got complete authority over everything that happens in the deepest part of the ocean. And he's got complete authority over the life of every single person, whether they love him or hate him. And in that sense, Jesus' kingship extends everywhere. He rules over everything. But when the Bible, particularly when Matthew is talking about the kingdom... It's meaning this, where it's where Jesus' reign is embraced and submitted to. There's a difference, isn't there, between someone ruling over you and you embracing somebody's rule. Well, that's what the kingdom of heaven is. That's where, when we embrace the rule of Christ in our lives. So for us as Christians, Jesus is our king. Jesus carries absolute authority in our lives. There are some things that we won't do. There are some places we'll never go because Jesus is our king. But as of this week, Charles is our king as well. Now, just because Jesus is our king doesn't mean we can disregard and disobey the kingdom that Charles represents. When Charles's kingdom represent, contradicts Jesus' kingdom, we can, but otherwise, no. And we talked last week about the tension, didn't we, that we live in? Because we're members of two kingdoms. One that's ending and dying and the other that's growing and eternal. And we're, if you remember, the, the communion table is the crossover. If, if the kingdom of earth began there, it, it, it ends here at Jesus' return. And if the kingdom of God begins here and carries on for eternity, we're in this bit between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it brings attention with it. Because one, one kingdom has values that we love and we embrace and, and we seek, and the others have lots that we can't embrace and lots that we can't submit to. Some of, some of you, well, I have as well, but some, some of you, you'll have two kingdoms in one house. Because you'll go home tonight, and some people in the house will be Christians, and some won't be Christians. And you've got the tension that, that that brings. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes what it looks like to live in both kingdoms. But to live as a citizen of heaven. 
How do, you, how do you live as a citizen of heaven on earth? And it's so practical, this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches people, he teaches how to enter his kingdom. And then he teaches how to live as kingdom members. And what, what you realize is that they're both the same. The way we enter is the way, that, the way in is the way along. We enter by poverty of spirit and we continue by it. So how do we get into this kingdom? Who's the kingdom of heaven for? Well, it's not for people who think they've made it. It's for people who know that they need Jesus. And we started looking at the Beatitudes last week, and we're blessed, unbelievably blessed, fortunate are those that. And the first one is blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying there is... That the kingdom of heaven is for people who know that they can't do it on their own, who know that they need Jesus, who know that they're failures. Heaven and a relationship with Jesus isn't for people who think they're good enough or almost good enough and, and just need a little spiritual leg up. It's for people who are of poverty of spirit, people who acknowledge I am spiritually bankrupt when I stand before a holy God. And when we do that, when we come to Jesus with that attitude, he says, look, I've got a kingdom just for people like you. And throughout the Bible, we, we come to this theme, don't we, again, of import, the importance of humility. Understanding our limits before God. It's one of the most important parts of the Christian life. It's so hard to learn. I'm glad I've learned it. It's humility. Understand, that's a joke. Understanding your limits before a holy God and understanding how much you need him. Well, the kingdom of heaven is for people who recognize the poverty of spirit. The, the kingdom of heaven is for people who realize that they're a failure, who acknowledge that they're a failure, and who come to Jesus for mercy. And it's not that we enter by poverty of spirit and then we live by other means. We don't enter by a poverty of spirit and then live in our own strength. That'd be stupid. The way in is the way along. We, we live by poverty of spirit. We enter in by grace. We live by grace. And as we do that, what starts to happen, or what should happen in us, is increasingly... We'll look around and we'll look at ourselves, or other people will be able to look at us, and they'll see marks of our citizenship. They'll see marks that mark us out as members of this kingdom. This kingdom, not that one. And tonight we're going to see four of those marks. Now remember, these marks are the way in and they're the way along. And the way that the, the Beatitudes work is it tells us there's a blessing, and then it gives us a condition for the blessing and a promise. So you've got a blessing, a condition, and a promise. So the first mark of a member of the kingdom of heaven that we're going to look at tonight is, I mean, four questions really. Firstly, does your sin grieve you? Does your sin grieve you? Look at verse 4 with me. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? Over the years, this verse has been preached at funerals to people who are mourning because a loved one's died. Now, God can comfort people who are mourning, but that's not what this verse means. God does comfort people who are in physical mourning, but the great mistake is to think that the kingdom of heaven is for people who have simply lost loved ones. That's not what this verse is saying at all, because lots of people mourn in this world, but they don't all receive comfort. This mourning that, that Jesus is talking about, it's mourning because we realize we've offended God. It's mourning because we realize how offensive our sin is to God. 
And there are loads of people, aren't there, who are sorry about things, but they don't mourn. I know people, and you'll know people, who've done really terrible things, horrible things, sneaky things, and they say, I'm really sorry, and you say to them, okay, this is how I think you can put it right, and you find that they're not that sorry after all. They just feel, feel a bit sorry. Some people are sorry that they got found out. Some people are sorry for what's happened, but not actually sorry for what they've done. And so the first question, one of the first things about the Christian life is that our sin that hurts God, does it hurt us? Does our sin make us mourn? When Isaiah stood before God, he was a sinner. And he cried out, he saw, he saw who he was before a holy God. And he said, I'm undone. I am unraveled. He was devastated when he saw himself as he was. Even the Apostle Paul, you think, can't think of anyone more godly, really, in, in Christianity than, than the Apostle Paul. And he said, I am a wretched man. I am a chief of sinners. He said, who, who can deliver me from this body of death? That was Paul as a Christian saying that. And so to mourn for our sin, it's not that we're to be morose. It's that we have a personal grief when we know we've offended God. Don't answer, but do you feel that? When you, when you know you've upset the Lord and let him down, it grieves you. We should feel bad, but we should be encouraged because that's the mark of a Christian. That we mourn for our sin. What's your attitude when you hear or understand that you're a, a sinner? Do you, do you, do you, does it sound old and Victorian? Does it, does it offend you or does it, does it cut you to your heart? As somebody, as a Christian, what's our attitude to, to sin? Do, does it, do we mourn and grieve when we know we've let the Lord down? Or do we have the attitude, well, my sin was just covered at the cross. I, just, I don't need to worry about it. We think more about the sins of other people. Do, do other people's sins grieve us? Do we look at society and that the sins of society grieve us? They might make us angry, but do they make us grieve? And this, this challenges me because I'm comforted in one way because I definitely grieve over my sin. You could say too much in some ways and, and over the wrong things. I grieve over my sin. I don't grieve as much as I should over the sins of society and the sins of others. So this beatitude, this blessing is God will comfort those who mourn for the sin. And as we become Christians, we, we do it with a massive sense. We, we're convicted of our sin. We mourn over our sin. We feel our sin. It makes us sad. We come to God in a poverty of spirit. We ask him for mercy. And the blessing is that he comforts us. How do we receive the blessing? When we mourn for our sin, what's the blessing? We're comforted because our sin's taken away. Our sin's paid for and it comforts us. But as we go along the Christian life, we, we mourn over sin and that marks us out. It's not just that we mourn for our sin when we first become Christians and then we don't need to mourn for it. We, we recognize all the time that when we sin and it grieves us and then the, when it grieves us, the gospel comforts us. See, the now of knowing that we're forgiven comforts us and the not yet of knowing one day we'll never sin again, it, it comforts us. But a mark of a true Christian is we grieve, we mourn over our sin and God comforts those kind of people. Unless our sin upsets us, we won't enjoy Jesus. Jesus won't be sweet to us unless our sin's bitter to us. I don't know if that's a Puritan quote or I've made it up, but 
If I've made it up, I'm pleased with myself, although I'm trying to be humble. I think it's a Puritan one. Our, our sin won't be, our, Jesus won't be sweet to us unless our sin's bitter. Does our sin, does the sin of other people cause us to mourn? Don Carson says something along these lines. He says, we're ready to join Jesus in Matthew 23 when he walks around pronouncing doom on a wicked society. But do we stop, before, do we stop with him before the end of the chapter and weep with him? I thought that's a really good way to look at this. When we look at society, do we go around like Jesus' woe, doom, woe, doom, woe, doom, woe, doom, but Jesus stops before the end and weeps. He mourns over the sin of society, and that's a mark of a Christian. We mourn over our sin, and we mourn over the sin of others. Second mark of a, of a member of the kingdom of heaven, are we willing to miss out on things for the kingdom's sake? Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's the blessing, the condition is meek, and the promise is inheriting the earth. I wonder what you think of when you think of meekness. Do you think of weakness or strength? Well, Jesus does bless weak people, praise God, because we're weak. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is actually the opposite of weakness. Meekness is having the strength to do what you want to do and deferring that right. Meekness is having mega strength but using it gently. Think about Moses. Moses was strong but he was meek. Hebrews 12, 24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked towards the reward. Here's Moses, Moses the prince of Egypt, phenomenally blessed and privileged life. He'd never want for anything ever, but he saw Christ's people suffering, and he thought there's more value to serving Christ than there is in enjoying the wealth of Egypt, because when I serve Christ, I get the reward of inheriting the earth. That's meekness. Or think of Abraham. Abraham was wealthy and he was important. We wouldn't typically think of Abraham as meek. But we're told by faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, like a refugee. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him at the same promise, because he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So here's Abraham. And Abraham, this wealthy bloke, ends up living his life in a tent as a refugee, because he's looking towards a greater inheritance. See, meekness is when heaven rules in our hearts to such an extent that we're prepared to make sacrifices on earth, knowing that we've got something better in heaven, and not be bitter about it. Think of Jesus as he's described in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is an amazing chapter. Jesus being in the very nature God, didn't consider, it, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped for. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he had absolute equality with the Father. But he made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What happens next? He's given the name above all names and he's exalted forever. Jesus left glory. Jesus became a servant so that he could share his glory with us and he'd get even greater glory. That's meekness. Are we meek? 
They don't just say, yeah, I am. But are we prepared to forgo things for the sake of the gospel? Are we prepared to forego comforts if it's needed for the sake of the gospel? Are we prepared to resist the opportunity to vindicate ourselves, even if it means we have to suffer a little bit for it, for the sake of the gospel? Are we prepared, as Abraham was with Lot, to let other people have what's rightly ours and not get bitter about it? We don't need to fight every cause against us, can we? But, but it's difficult. How, how can we be meek like that? We're meek when we know what we're going to inherit. If I know that I've got a million pounds coming to me, I'm not going to worry about spending a tenner. If we know that we're inheriting the earth, we're not going to worry about giving certain rights over in this world. And at times we can be so angry and so bitter and so determined not to look bad and, and so keen to prove ourselves, we forget what the kingdom of heaven's like. We forget what we're going to inherit. Blessed are the meek, because the meek will inherit the earth. Third mark of a Christian is this. Do we want to be holy? Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What's your appetite like? What's your appetite for enjoyment like? What's your appetite for sport like? What's your appetite for life like? What's your appetite to be more like Jesus like? There are two ways to think about being righteous. None of them's wrong. Firstly, it's to be right with God, isn't it? Righteousness is that we're right with God. So the way into the kingdom, we have a humble desire to be right with God. We come to Jesus with that desire. And through Christ's death and his resurrection, we're made righteous with God. But this beatitude goes further than that. Because our, our, our righteousness in one way, you could say it's outward, couldn't you? We're clothed with righteousness. But inside, we know we're not. We need sanctifying. And I think that's what, what this, this beatitude's getting at, the, the the righteousness that comes through sanctification. What's our appetite like in our lives day by day to be godly? What's our attitude like? This, this is the other way righteousness works. What's our attitude like to see justice done? Because if we truly seek after righteousness, if we, if we seek after holiness, if we, if we do that, if we pursue godliness, God's promise will fill us. God don't make promises to tease us. You see, if you pursue righteousness, if you try and live a godly life, I'll give you righteousness, I'll give you a godly life. And there's a future sense to this. We will be filled. You know, good things come to those who wait. In heaven, we'll, we'll be completely filled with righteousness. Our righteous standing with God will be the same as our righteous life. It'll be perfect. But there is a righteousness, I think, that we can genuinely know. There's a holiness we can genuinely know on earth. And, and that challenges me. I'll tell you why it challenges me. I think, you might tell me different, I think that I'm poor in spirit generally. Maybe I'm a bit too poor in spirit. Generally, I don't struggle with being poor in spirit. I don't struggle mourning over my sin. I mourn over my sin daily. I'd say even in, in meekness in some way, I'd love to be more meek, but I do think I make sacrifices often in this life for the next and I, and I do allow the Lord to vindicate me rather than fight in my corner sometimes and I do want to be godly and I do want to be righteous but I'm not sure I hunger after it if I'm honest 
And if you're honest with yourself, do you hunger after it? And the question I put to us and myself is, do I have the appetite for real holiness? Because we want the Lord to bless us here, don't we? We, we, we want to pray, Lord, do a reviving work amongst us. But I almost don't pray for it because I'm not sure I've got the appetite for real righteousness, real holiness. We want, we want revival. We want holiness. But are we willing to come to the prayer meeting? Are we willing to be transparent in the way we are with people? Are we willing to give our rights up for other people and not fight for them? Are we willing to obey Scripture as, as closely as we can? See, we can talk until the cows come home about wanting God to bless us, but do we have the appetite for that? God fills those who are hungry. Are we hungry? Because Jesus says if we're hungry and we pursue him, he'll fill us. I think I'm more of a grazer than a nibbler. God doesn't tease us. us, God won't give you an appetite for something and then hold it back from you. And he calls us to seek after righteousness, seek after vibrant, righteous holiness and godliness. But we don't fall into it, we seek it. Fourth mark and the final mark we'll look at tonight is, are we merciful? Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We've got to be careful with this one. It's not saying the only way we'll get mercy from God is being merciful to others first. That's religion, that's works righteousness. We don't get mercy from God by showing mercy to others. It's this, God has been amazingly merciful to us. And if we understand that, we cannot but be merciful to others. And let me tell you how it works. This is how it works without the gospel. This is how it works without grace. People who pursue righteousness end up being sanctimonious I've seen it I'm sure you have righteousness without grace is people who are sanctimonious and callous and miserable there's ever such a fine line between being holy and not being merciful and I say that I remember different conversations I've had but I remember three specific conversations I've had with people and to be fair all these people desired and pursued holiness There were people who were upright. But what I found in in these three people particularly was that they ended up becoming hard work to be around. Because at various times, in various situations, they wanted to hammer people when they'd fallen into sin. They wanted to expose people, they wanted to deal with people, they wanted to root people out. But real godly people are merciful. We don't cover up sin, but we cover I don't mean we're soft. I, I, I must admit, I'd rather the Lord tell me when I get to heaven, Ben, you're a bit too gentle there than a bit too cocky. But as Christians, we, we're merciful because we've received mercy. And real righteousness will be mercy because Jesus, the righteous one, he wanted justice for others. He was merciful. I want to ask a question as well. When, when you think of God's mercy to you, do you think of it as past or present? When you think about God's mercy, is it, is it past or present that first comes into your mind? Because if we only see God's mercy as something that was granted to us in the past, we won't be merciful. 
But if we see our poverty every day, if every day we mourn for our sin, we will be merciful to people. Often the reason we're not merciful to people is because we don't think we need mercy. We've had our mercy. But are we compassionate to, and gentle to people who are miserable and helpless? I, I came off social media last year. There were a couple of reasons. One of the main reasons I came off all social media, I got so upset and I got so wound up at how Christians engaged A with Christians and B with non-Christians. And I was finding myself every day halfway through typing an angry response and thinking, no, don't do it. You've got the parable of the Good Samaritan, haven't you? And Jesus asks at the end, who proved to be a good neighbor? And the answer comes about the one who showed mercy. How did he show mercy? He was kind to somebody who was his enemy. He put himself out for somebody. He could have made a hundred excuses, but he sought to show, to show dignity to someone who were his enemy. What did Jesus do with broken reeds and dimly burning wicks? He gently restored us. Jesus didn't just show mercy to people who called out for it. He was compassionate. Jesus knew that some of those who came to hear him were just there for the food, but he still fed them. Throughout the gospel, Jesus was compassionate and merciful, not just in what we call a saving way, but in a, in a general way. He was compassionate, he was merciful by nature. But showing mercy is costly, isn't it? Because it leaves you exposed. It's, it's, it's hard to be merciful because people who need mercy are generally the ones who we feel don't deserve it. And it's usually true. They say, don't they, an alcoholic who won't admit to being an alcoholic hates other alcoholics. They can't stand other alcoholics. They have no sympathy for them. But if only they'd admit their problem, they'd have sympathy for them. I think that's how we can be as Christians sometimes, isn't it? I remember being at college and one of the lecturers said to us, he said, look, we can't say this for, for certain. It's, it's not a 100% thing. He says, but in my life, and he'd been a minister for 40-odd years, he said, the people who, who are the most unmerciful and they come across as very righteous, he says, usually, it's a found in almost every case that they've, got, they've all got big skeletons in the closet. They're unmerciful to others but they've got massive skeletons in their own closet. And because they've never dealt with them, and they've never thrown themselves on God's mercy and say, I am poor in spirit, Lord, I need mercy, they become hard towards other people. It's how we can be if we're not careful as Christians, isn't it? We don't, we don't see the wickedness of our own hearts, we just see the wickedness of other people's. We've forgotten what we're capable of, and we become unsympathetic to other people. We think of how we've had victory over sin in a certain area, and if somebody else hasn't, we're not merciful towards them. They frustrate us, and we could reel off reasons why we don't need to be kind to them, but we forget that God was kind to us when we didn't deserve it. Let me read something that really convicts me. I can't even remember where I read it now, but it says this. This beatitude forces the professing disciple of Jesus Christ to ask himself some hard questions. Am I merciful or scornful to the wretched? Am I gentle or hard-nosed towards the downtrodden? Do I say they've only got themselves to blame? Am I helpful or callous towards the backslidden? Am I compassionate or impatient with the fallen? Remember how we started last week? We can't be these things on our own. We can only be these things. We can only be merciful and mourn for sin and all those other things 
when first of all we come in poverty of spirit to Jesus and we thank Jesus that he mourned over the sins of the world we thank Jesus that in meekness he left heaven's glory to come to earth to do something about it we, we thank Jesus that he won a righteousness to share with us and he acted out justice for the broken and we thank Jesus that he's far more merciful than I am because if Jesus is, if, if, if the mercy was show mercy you'll receive it we wouldn't be receiving mercy Jesus is merciful Jesus has saved helpless people like us Jesus loved us when we didn't love him and they're the marks of someone who belongs to him we'll mourn for our sin we'll be meek and be willing to make sacrifices we'll seek after genuine righteousness we'll be merciful we can't be those things perfectly because we live in two kingdoms and the old kingdom's snapping at our heels all the time but we can increasingly be those things genuinely those things mark us out as members of his kingdom so if we want to enter the kingdom we, we mourn over our sin we're willing to give up habits and lifestyles that are anti-Jesus, but we need his help to do it. And we ask him for mercy. And, uh, and that's not just the way in, that's the way along. We don't come into the kingdom by mourning for our sin and asking for mercy and then go along another way. We never outgrow these beatitudes. We never reach a point where we don't need to mourn for our sin. We never reach a point where we don't need to desire righteousness anymore because we've got there. But praise be to God that he comforts us. When we mourn over our sin, he comforts us. That he includes us in his inheritance that will reign with him forever. That he fills us when we come to him and ask to be made holy. And that he's merciful to us. So let's pray and let's ask that he'll help us become more like him. Father, we don't want to look at this sermon on the mount and see it as a tick box or a to-do list of how to be a good Christian. We look at this sermon and we see our need for you and that's what it should make us see, our poverty of spirit. And yet we can know righteousness in this life, genuinely. Lord, help us to mourn for our sin. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to give up our rights rather than fight for them. Help us to seek you and look to live a godly life. And Lord, help us to be merciful. Help us to do this every day and, and to rely on you, not just as our example, but the one who, who's done all this for us in the first place. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together. I am trusting Thee, Lord Jesus.
Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the very description of meekness, the one who owned all things, the author and finisher of our faith, and yet for the joy set before him, for the joy of winning us as your trophy, endured the cross, and he received the reward of sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and receiving that name above all names that will bow down and worship. We thank you that this is done for us and now we can live in it with your strength. Help us, Lord. Help us never to outgrow our perceived need of you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.